TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Feminist Theology and Women in the Muslim World. Dr. Rifat Hassan is a Muslim theologian from Pakistan. She says that since anti-woman legislation and custom are enacted in the name of theology, it is necessary to study the Quran and critique the source. This required courage, since challenging traditional interpretation of the Quran can be a capital offense. On the other hand, we are all familiar with the claim that Islam has given women more rights than any other religious tradition, and Rifat Hassan decided to deal with that contradiction. Rifat Hassan began her quest in 1984 when her feminist friends in Pakistan asked her to help define the theological argument for women's liberation. That request changed her life. The events of 9-11 made her work much harder, but she continued to search for legislation inside Pakistan to help women, and she tried in many ways to promote understanding of Islam internationally. You are about to hear a rare TUC Radio archive recording that I made of Rifat Hassan in April 1993 at UC Berkeley. I had never heard a purely theological argument for women's liberation and learned much about Islam that night. What touched me was the recognition how closely related Islam, Christianity, and Judaism are making women of these three faiths the largest minority of any kind in the world. The basic myth of Adam and Eve is embedded in all three religions and is used by all of them to define women as secondary, inferior, and sinful. In this talk, Rifat Hassan takes a closer look at the original story told in the Quran. And by the end of this program, your idea of Adam's identity, or who was first, and the whole issue of the rib will become thoroughly shaken. Get ready for some door slamming as some unhappy men in the audience left the auditorium. But first get to know the person, Dr. Rifat Hassan. Before I begin, uh, I would uh, like to greet all of you with the Islamic greetings. Salaamu Alaikum. And to share with you, first of all, something of my own background and how I came to work in the area of women in the Islamic tradition. I have always known what it is to be a Muslim woman since I was born in a Sayyid Muslim family living in Lahore, a historic Muslim city in Pakistan, a country created in the name of Islam. But it was not until 1974 when I was um, teaching at Oklahoma State University in a place called Stillwater, which lives up to its name, um, that I started almost accidentally and rather reluctantly on my career as a uh, theologian. Each year they would hold a seminar, and it was a custom that the faculty advisor would make a presentation. Now, generally speaking, the faculty advisor could speak on anything that he wanted to speak on. But in my case, I was assigned a specific subject. I was told to speak about women in Islam. Now, I felt uh, a little bit affronted by uh, this uh, imposition of topic. It was apparent to me that I had been given this subject because uh, the people who belong to this chapter, who were mostly Arab Muslims, 
felt that I wasn't competent to speak about anything else, even though I taught them Islamic studies. And so they assigned to me the subject. However, I accepted this invitation for two reasons. One was that um, for the first time, this group had been put in a position where they had to have a woman speaker. This group would not allow women even in its audience. And so I felt that that in itself was a breakthrough. And the second reason was that I was so tired of reading book after book, article after article, brochure after brochure about women in Islam, all of them written by Muslim men. You have no idea how many there are. Now, uh, my secret dream, of course, is to one day write something about the role and position and status of Muslim men or man in Islam. <laughs> because I'm becoming very concerned about the fact that uh, nothing is written on this subject and I <laughs> sort of feel that there is no role or status or position of man in Islam. Um, it's only women who have that, that honor. So I'd sort of like to uh, do something in that regard, but anyhow, until, we, uh, until I get there, I thought that it was important to study this question from a woman's perspective. I had studied the Quran, and I used the Quran as a textbook, in fact, in my courses on Islam. But I had not done a focused study of the Quranic passages dealing with women. I started to do that, to look deeper into these passages, particularly those passages which are controversial, more difficult passages. I do not know exactly at what time my academic study of uh, women in Islam became a passionate quest for truth and justice on behalf of Muslim women. It happened when I realized the impact on my own life of the so-called Islamic ideas and attitudes regarding women. And I began to realize that so many things had happened to me in my own life because I had been born female in a Muslim society. So what began as a scholarly exercise <clears throat> became simultaneously an Odyssean venture in self-understanding, but enlightenment does not always bring endless bliss. And the more I saw the justice and compassion of God reflected in the Quran, the more anguished and angry I became seeing the injustice and inhumanity to which Muslim women in general are subjected in actual life. I began to feel strongly that it was my duty as part of the microscopic minority of educated Muslim women to do as much consciousness raising regarding the situation of Muslim women as I could. So this journey which began in Stillwater has been an arduous one and has taken me far and wide in pursuit of my quest. When I think of the situation of my sisters who despite being the largest minority in the world more than half of the one billion strong Muslim Ummah remain for the most part nameless, faceless, and voiceless. I know that there is no end to this journey in sight. Despite the fact that women such as Khadija and Aisha, wives of the Prophet Muhammad, and Rabia al-Basri, the outstanding Muslim Sufi saint, figure significantly in early Islam, the Islamic tradition has, by and large, remained rigidly patriarchal until the present time. Prohibiting the growth of scholarship among women, particularly in the realm of religious thought. 
This means that the sources on which the Islamic tradition is mainly based, namely the Quran, the Sunnah, the Hadith literature, and Fiqh, have been interpreted only by Muslim men who have arrogated to themselves the task of defining the ontological, theological, sociological, and eschatological status of Muslim women. It is hardly surprising that until now the majority of Muslim women have accepted the situation passively, almost unaware of the extent to which they are human, also their Islamic, in an ideal sense, rights have been violated by their male-dominated societies, which have continued to assert glibly and tirelessly that Islam has given women more rights than any other religious tradition. In recent times, largely due to the pressure of anti-women laws that are being promulgated under the cover of what is known as Islamization in some parts of the Muslim world, women with some degree of education and awareness are beginning to realize that religion is being used as an instrument of oppression rather than as a means of liberation. To understand the strong impetus to Islamize Muslim societies, especially with regard to women-related norms and values, it is necessary to know that of all the challenges confronting the Muslim world today, perhaps the greatest is that of modernity. Women, both educated and uneducated, who are participating in the national workforce and contributing toward national development, think and behave differently from women who have no sense of their individual identity or autonomy as active agents in history. Not too long ago, many women in Pakistan and also in other Islamic countries were jolted out of their dogmatic slumber by the enactment of laws as well as by threatened legislation which was aimed to reduce them systematically, virtually mathematically, to less than men. In the face of both military dictatorship and religious autocracy, valiant efforts have been made by women's groups in Pakistan to protest against the instituting of manifestly anti-women laws and to highlight cases of gross injustice and brutality toward women. However, it is still not clearly and fully understood, even by many women activists in Pakistan as well as in other Muslim countries, that the negative ideas and attitudes pertaining to women that prevail in Muslim societies are in general rooted in theology, and that unless or until the theological foundations of the misogynistic and anthropocentric tendency in the Islamic tradition are demolished, Muslim women will continue to be brutalized and discriminated against despite improvement in statistics such as those on female education, employment, and social and political rights. In my judgment, the importance of developing what the West calls theology or feminist theology in the context of Islam is paramount today with a view to liberating not only Muslim women but also Muslim men from unjust structures and laws that make a peer relationship between men and women impossible. It is good to know that in the last hundred years, there have been at least two significant Muslim men scholars and activists, Qasim Amin from Egypt and Mumtaz Ali from India, who have been strong advocates of women's rights. I remember how stricken I felt when I first began to see the glaring discrepancy between Islamic ideals and Muslim practice insofar as women are concerned. I set out to articulate what I considered to be the normative Islamic view of women. And in 1979, I wrote a monograph, it, uh, which has never been published, called Women in the Quran, 
in which I gave a detailed exposition of those passages of the Quran which relate to women in various contexts. For example, women vis-a-vis -vis God, women in the context of human creation in the story of the fall, women as daughters, wives and mothers, women in the context of marriage, divorce, inheritance, segregation, bailing, witnessing to contract, economic rights, afterlife, etc. In particular, I focused attention upon those passages which were regarded as definitive in the context of man-woman relationship and upon which the alleged superiority of men to women rested. In 1983 and 84, I spent two years in Pakistan. Now this happened to be a period of time when Islamization in Pakistan was at its peak. And a lot of laws, anti-women laws, were being enacted. And in the wake of these laws, a lot of brutality was being exhibited toward Muslim women. As a result of the, these oppressive laws, the feminist movement, or the women's movement, or the women's activist movement, was born in, in Pakistan. These women, for the most part, were Western-educated women, because those women were the only women who had the ability to lead any kind of a political movement in the country. And many of them were women with great character and, and courage, and they were able to take great personal risk in the face of uh, martial law, which was pr prevailing in the country. But despite the fact that they were not la lacking in, in courage or commitment, they felt that they were not succeeding in their struggle. And the reason why they were not succeeding in their struggle was because the laws that were being enacted in the country were being enacted in the name of God, in the name of religion, in the name of Islam. And a religious argument cannot be overturned by political action. A religious argument can only be overturned by a better religious argument. And so some of these women who happened to be my friends or who knew me asked me if I would help them. That was for me a historic moment of my life. Because for 10 years, from 1974 to 1984, I had been doing this work essentially and primarily for myself. I was trying to make some sense out of my own life. But at this point, when I was asked by the women's groups in Pakistan to provide them with a theology and an ideology on which they could base their movement, this became for me a radically different situation. And I had to rethink virtually everything that I had done. I spent a, this, that summer thinking very hard about this issue and in reading two kinds of materials or two bodies of material I did a systematic study of the two major hadith collections in Sunni Islam, namely Sahih al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim. Those two books are next in authority only to the Quran as far as the Sunni Muslims are concerned. And I also spent time studying the work of some contemporary Jewish and Christian women uh, and men, uh, feminist theologians. And at the end of my period of study and reflection, I came to see that there are three assumptions which lie at the root of the attitudes, negative attitudes toward women, not only in the Islamic tradition, but also in the Jewish and Christian traditions. And these three assumptions are the following. First, that God's primary creation is man, not woman, since woman is believed to have been created from man's, man's rib, 
hence is derivative and secondary ontologically. Second, that woman, not man, was the primary agent of what is described as the fall of man, or man's expulsion from the Garden of Eden. Hence, all daughters of Eve are to be regarded with hatred, suspicion, and contempt. And number three, that woman was created not only from man, but also for man, which makes her existence merely instrumental and not of fundamental importance. To me, the most important of these three questions is the first question, is the question of um, creation. The ordinary Muslim believes, as seriously as the ordinary Jew or Christian, that Adam was God's primary creation and Eve was made from Adam's rib. This belief is very strange, given the fact that there is no mention of the rib story in the Quran. Now let me give a little bit of background of this rib story. There are in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, which is the opening book of the Bible, there are two creation stories. There's one creation story, which is given in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. This is attributed to a writer called the priestly writer who lived in the 5th century BCE. And the second story, which is given in chapter 2 of Genesis, verses 18 to 24, is attributed to a writer called the Yahvist writer who lived in the 10th century BCE, which is five years, 500 years before the other writer. Now, the first creation story, or the one that's in chapter 1 of Genesis, is egalitarian, and it talks about God creating ha'adam, which means the human in the image of God, creating it male and female and giving them dominion over the sea and the earth and so, so on. Whereas the second story, which is in the second chapter of Genesis, is the story that everybody knows about God creating Adam, Adam was lonely, and so God put Adam to sleep, and out of the rib of Adam, God created Eve. And the way that this story has been interpreted through the centuries has been very detrimental to women, because as I indicated before, it has led to the inference that God's primary creation was Adam, Adam in Hebrew, which is interpreted as being a male person, and so the male person becomes primary, and the woman is derived from this male person and is secondary. Now, as the work of many feminist theologians in indicates, the interpretation, the traditional interpretation of the story in what is generally referred to as the Judeo-Christian tradition, but mainly it is the Christian tradition, is erroneous because Adam in Hebrew does not mean a male person. The word Adam in Hebrew means the human. So it's a generic word, it's a collective noun, and it refers to humanity as a whole. If one were to read the Bible in the Hebrew, which is the language of the Bible, the original language of, the, of what we call the Old Testament, then this would be self-evident. But to most people, most Jews, Christians, and Muslims, Adam is the name of a male person. Now, as far as the Quranic account of creation is concerned, there are two or three very interesting things that we need to note. First of all, we note that there are, the word Adam is found 25 times in the Quran. The word Adam is not an Arabic word. It's a Hebrew word which has been co-opted into the Arabic language. Now, Arabic and Hebrew are, of course, sister languages. They are both Semitic languages. But since the word is originally Hebrew, it means the same thing in Arabic as it means in the Hebrew language. And it means, therefore, 
the human. It's very important and interesting to note that in the Quran there is no Eve. There is no Eve in the Quran. There is an Eve in the Islamic tradition called Hava. Again, that's an, a Hebrew word, but there is no Eve in the Quran. And why should there be any Eve in the Quran if Adam represents humanity, which is what the word means? Now, there are 30 passages in the Quran which deal with the subject of human creation. Now, of course, the Quran is not structured like the Bible, and it's not chronological, and therefore you do not find all accounts of human creation in chapter one of the Quran. They are scattered throughout the Quran. But if you collect all these passages and you study them, you see that there are three generic terms that are used in these contexts. And these three generic terms are an-nas, al-insan, and bashr. And all three of these terms represent or refer to humanity as a whole. They do not refer to either male or female exclusively. As pointed out by Muhammad Iqbal, the outstanding Muslim poet philosopher of the 20th century, uh, quote, indeed in the verses which deal with the origin of man as a living being, the Quran uses the word bashr or insan, not adam, which it reserves for man in his capacity of God's vicegerent on earth. The purpose of the Quran is further secured by the omission of proper names mentioned in the biblical narration, Adam and Eve. The word Adam is retained and used more as a concept than as the name of a concrete human individual. This use of the word is not without authority in the Quran itself. Now here we come to a very interesting situation, and that is that though there is no rib story in the Quran, and these 30 accounts of human creation that I have referred to, if you look at them, there is no mention in any of these passages of the creation of a male person prior to that of a female person. There's no such reference, no such implication possible if you study these passages accurately. However, if you ask an average Muslim any place in the world, and I've done this pop quiz in many places in the world, you ask a Muslim, how was Eve created? And the answer comes back without a batting of an eyelid, from the rib of Adam, I said, so you've been reading Genesis. <laughs> the story is certainly not in the Quran. It's not a Quranic story. Not only is it not a Quranic story, but it is antithetical. It's, it is against the teaching of the Quran on the subject of human creation. There is an expression in the Quran, which is found in several passages, which is interpreted in a very interesting way. Uh, chapter 4, which is Surah An-Nisa, chapter on women in the Quran, uh, verse 1. Uh, it talks about the creation of humanity. God created humanity. And it goes on to say, Khalakakum min nafsin wahidatin. And God created all of you, in the plural, all of humanity, min nafsin wahidatin, from one single nafs. Now, Nafs is a word that's translated variously as self, as being, as entity, as person. There's a big discussion on it. So anyhow, for the, the time being, let's say it means being or entity. The other important thing is that in Arabic, every word is either ma masculine or feminine. And nafs happens to be feminine, grammatically. 
And so it says, and God created all of you from one single nafs, nafs being grammatically feminine. And then it goes on to say, وَخَلَقَ minha zawjha. And God created, minha means from her, her going back to nafs, which is feminine, zawjha, her mate. Now, what's very interesting, that's interesting, but what's more interesting, the reason I'm, I'm citing this is because, for example, Yusuf Ali, whose Quran I have here, which is one of the most popular uh, translations of the Quran, says here, O mankind, reverence your guardian Lord who created you from a single person, created of like nature his mate, and from them twins scattered like seeds, countless men and women. Now, there is no question at all that ha means her and not his. <laughs> there is not a single translation of the Quran in any language which says that. I, I believe I have looked at over a hundred translations in English alone, and I haven't found one that says that. Most of them, I think over 95 or 96 percent say his. A couple, two or three maybe that I have seen say it, its mate, which is better in some ways, but there is no it in the Arabic language. Now the question, this is a serious question from one point of view because Muslims take the Quran very seriously. So why is it and how is it that these eminent scholars of Islam who undertake to translate the Quran presumed to correct the grammar of the Quran? Because how has this her become his? So this is just to give you a little flavor of how language, how the politics of language works and how important it is that by changing one single word, you turn the whole thing around. That was Dr. Rifat Hassan, a Muslim theologian from Pakistan, recorded at UC Berkeley in April 1993. Come back when TUC Radio returns to see how the original story in the Quran was altered by later writers and translators. When feminist theologian Rifat Hassan said anti-woman writing was added later by companions of the Prophet, doors were slammed. The Quran, on the basis of my years of study, guarantees human freedom and equality. Up till this point, it has not been possible to raise any critical question about the companions of the Prophet. It's a capital crime. And those who walked out and slammed the door were young men, students at UC Berkeley in 1993. Now, 30 years later, women are losing power, even in democracies. Women held as secondary, sinful, and in need of control by men, based on their religion, are the biggest minority on earth. Just Islam and Christianity control over 55% of world population. That may be an opportunity, along with the growing interest in pronouns. Rifat Hassan was professor of religious studies and humanities at the University of Louisville, Kentucky. She received her PhD from Durham University, UK, in 1968 and has taught in many institutions, including Oklahoma State University and Harvard Divinity School. She retired in 2009 after 33 years of teaching. 
This was a rare TUC Radio Archive recording brought back for International Women's Month. You can hear this program again on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. That's tucradio.org. Look under Newest Programs. My name is Maria Geleiden. Thank you for listening.